Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. President Franklin Roosevelt gave his third fireside chat in the height of summer, July 1933. I think that we all wanted the opportunity of a little quiet thought to examine and assimilate in a mental picture the crowding events of the 100 days which had been devoted to the starting of the wheels of the new deal he said It was the first time a president had drawn attention to his first 100 days in office which had seen a flurry of action as his administration worked to lift America out of the economic doldrums FDR's successors have been judged on the 100 days metric ever since The start of Donald Trump's first term was full of disorganization and unrealistic promises. Now, many on the right are preparing an administration in waiting. If Trump is re-elected, they're planning for his second first 100 days to be much more organized than his first. I'm John Prado and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how would a second Trump term be different from the first? Donald Trump's first term in office was characterized by chaos. MAGA Republicans are already working to ensure the sequel, should there be one, is a more orderly affair. Thousand-page policy documents being prepared and plans to revolutionize the structure of government are in train. What would Donald Trump do with a second go at the presidency? With me this week to talk about the plans that are being laid right now for Donald Trump's second term if that happens are Idris Kalun in Washington DC and Charlotte Howard here with me in London. Charlotte, your family's all over your jet lag. Are you having a good time now? Not suggest that you weren't before. <laughs> yeah, I'm having a great time. I mean, one thing that's a little bit humbling about being in London is in New York, I am an Olympic level pedestrian and here I'm so incompetent. I'm constantly getting lost and I'm about to get run over at any moment. So that's somewhat discouraging, but generally you have a lovely city and we're all enjoying it. It was good to bring all my kids by the office. They clambered all over our boss's sofa, which felt like a good development. It was very nice to glimpse them here. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm glad that Charlotte is actually in the greatest city on earth as opposed to the uh pretender to the greatest city on earth burn <laughs> <laughs> um but it is it is tough for an american because you always look in the wrong direction and almost get run over by a double decker bus so good that you've avoided that so far any notes on dc weather for us 
<laughs> not as hot as the rest of the country. Um, that is true. That is yeah. true. Our colleague Erin has been in Phoenix this week where it was extraordinarily hot and she's written about that uh, in this week's issue of The Economist. And we'll be talking to her about that and some other things next week. I recommended that she go to the best pizza in America, which is available in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, we have to ask her whether or not she agrees with that assessment. But it's really, really good. Is Did they just put the dough outside? <laughs> no need for an oven. Yeah, you just yeah. put it on a slab on the concrete. It's called Pizza Rubianco. And uh, if you are ever in Phoenix, you should go. So this week we are talking not about Trump's theoretical plans for a second term, but what is actually underway now as people in Trump world prepare for a second Trump presidency. And John, you reported on this. We're talking about a piece that you wrote. It was last week's cover. Right. I wrote the briefing and Idris wrote the leader. This piece came about because we were all thinking here at The Economist and talking about Trump's first term. You know, one of the things as an editor trying to commission stories in Trump's first term was there's this constant feeling that we might have been paying attention to the wrong thing. You know, did we highlight the right things? Were there things we missed? Were there some things that seem consequential now that didn't at the time? And, you know, some things that we spent too much time worrying about. So I'd been thinking a bit about uh, Trump's first term and how we might cover another one. And then I got interested in this whole subject of the preparations for a second Donald Trump term. And it turned out after a bit of reporting and a few kind of chance encounters in the way that often happens when you're out doing reporting trips, that these plans are pretty well developed, that there are a bunch of think tanks that are putting together both the policy and the personnel for a second Trump term, which means I think were it to happen, and you know that's a likelihood you have to take quite seriously given he's the overwhelming front runner in the Republican primary, you know, were that to happen, the second Trump administration would be very different from a first one, you know, much more deliberate, much more planned. So that was the subject of the piece and of this week's podcast. And one of the key people making those plans is a guy called Paul Dans, who works for the Heritage Foundation. That's a conservative think tank in Washington that was really important to the Reagan movement and has subsequently reinvented itself as a sort of Trumpy America first outfit. Paul is leading Heritage's presidential transition project, and he began by telling me what they're learning from past transition mistakes. As a movement, conservatives, we've often spent great energy, obviously, getting the candidate elected, but it's not worth a hill of beans if you don't have a plan and people in place to start on day one. And, you know, the point is you have a limited shelf life, really, when the president walks in the door and that power is waning over time, almost like a battery life, and you need to hit the ground running. So this, our attempt here with Project 2025 is historic in the sense it's the first time we've comprehensively come together as a movement to systematically prepare way in advance. So it's a paradigm shift in a sense. And there are two parts to the 2025 plan. There's a personnel part and a policy part. Can we talk about personnel first? I mean, you have this effort to make sure there are three, 4,000 people in place, or ready at least to be in place, political appointees to staff the next administration, the next Republican administration. Can you tell me about how you're going about that? The axiom, and it's a truism really, is that personnel is policy, right? You've got to have people who are ready and have the firmament and the technical skills and really the, the vision to implement an idea. So we need to get those people in place early and be ready to roll. Typically, 
you know, people kind of come together in the aftermath of an election victory and start noodling, hey, you know, I think I could go to Washington. I think I could pull this off. I might leave my job and whatnot. But we really want to start that conversation way in advance. And what sort of people are you looking for? And how are you vetting them? The people we're looking for are people who've never really been to Washington, but have you know, they have worked, they have been in the trenches, they have been in the arena. And we're saying, come here, and we're going to train you, we're going to put you in place, we're going to show you the mission, and you're going to execute and then hopefully go home at the end of this. But we do not want the Washingtonian rinse and repeat. And in the first Trump administration, there was a perception, I think actually even a reality, right, if you remember that New York Times anonymous op-ed, that there were people political appointees even, but certainly federal bureaucrats who were not on board with the project. The vetting process is partly designed to weed those sorts of people out, right, to make sure that uh, the next Republican administration doesn't have people who are trying to thwart the president's policies, whatever those policies are. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly, you know, and I don't think that's a Republican thing. I think any president's entitled to a loyal and supportive kind of cadre of political appointees. I think in in President Trump's case, it was particularly acute because you had an outsider coming to Washington. And the only thing that Democrats and Republicans in Washington have in common is that they're in Washington. So they are not going to be receptive, particularly of someone coming in here and kind of overturning tables. That said, you know, obviously, President Trump didn't have a legion of kind of a political force behind him. He had a political force, but not kind of a trained group of people ready to be operatives. And in that sense, sure, you had kind of old Republican guard march into these seats. And our project is candidate agnostic, you know, but we certainly have a heavy flavor of, you know, America first, if you will, that we, in our book, The Conservative Promise, Mandate for Leadership, which is online at project2025.org, a full 900-page volume, we lay out essentially promises that the conservative movement is going to make to the voters and hope, you know, you give us power. But we need to have the people who are coming into the administration really committed to those ideals. So we framed it out to essentially make a book and say, read the book. If you're in alignment with us, great. We want you in our funnel. If you're not, hey, good luck to you, but you know, you're not going to be helpful in our administration. So, And just one more specific thing on that. There were some people within the conservative movement who were supportive of Donald Trump, you know, on board broadly with the America First agenda, maybe had some quibbles, but maybe that's normal and natural, but broke with him over January the 6th. What would be the transitions view of somebody who took that view, i.e. who'd been broadly supportive of Donald Trump, but actually thought that January the 6th, he was culpable for, you know, that crossed a line, and they were critical of him over that. You know, would that be something that in view of the transition project would sort of put them, you know, be a mark against them, or, or would that not really matter? Well, I think you need to step back as as conservatives, really, and Donald Trump is the tip of the spear. We are under attack. We are always being canceled. We are 
modern day hippies. Okay, I'm gonna put it out there. We're counterculture. You guys reading this magazine, you're establishment. We are anti-establishment. Okay, so there it is. Uh, and you know, when you have a march the day after inauguration and a million people flood in here and say resistance now, that is not exactly a handing over of power. So if you want to go back to so-called insurrections, you might want to look at 2016 and 17. That has not been any sort of accounting made, let alone anybody held accountable for or responsible for that. So in the great scheme of things, we want warriors. We want people who are committed to the movement. You know, again, we're candidate agnostic. I can't speak for what President Trump would ultimately want in his appointees, but I can tell you that we want people who, you know, when the going gets tough, they get going. I know it's a pat phrase, but hey, you got to be ready. This thing's, it's rock and roll in here. And, you know, we're having a nice conversation now, but I can imagine one day, like, fierce things written about me or any of my cohorts. So you, you need to know what you're marching into. And that's ultimately what we're doing. Idris, Charlotte, I've spoken to Paul Dans a couple of times now, but I think neither of you have. What did you make of that? I thought that was a fascinating interview and great to have access to Paul Dans, who clearly is one of the leading thinkers of what the second term might look like. My initial reaction when we were off air to the interview was an expletive, which I won't use now. But there are a few things that immediately stood out to me. The idea that any kind of protests after the election of 2016 were equivalent to mobs storming the Capitol is obviously patently absurd. Uh, and then I was struck, in addition to the substance of what he said, by his rhetoric, we want warriors. You have to know what we're marching into. It's a very militaristic framing, and he's using it as a metaphor, supposedly, but it's striking in the light of his prior comment on January 6th. And he took pains to say that they were candidate agnostic. And that's because although a lot of these institutions, these think tanks that you profile, John, are run by former Trump officials, and it's clear who their intended beneficiary is, they don't want to necessarily say that it's all for Trump. And also, I think they have a broader point, which is that almost all of the Republicans who are running and are in contention for the nomination sign up to a version of this. So it's important to understand in its own right. But I guess what's also interesting about saying it's candidate agnostic is do the same arguments apply if a Democrat wins? So what's interesting to me, and this is something that I was also thinking about because I was reading Chris Rufo's book uh, called America's Cultural Evolution, which just came out, but it's this kind of history about leftish ideas from obviously someone who is incredibly skeptical of them. But he makes the point that the left went from being incredibly skeptical of institutions like university administrators to very friendly towards them once it became clear that the power would benefit them. And I find a similar dynamic in the attitude between the populace and the state. So right now the state is deep, it needs to be purged. But the problem is not that the state has too much power, it's that the wrong people have, have power, right? So it's it, even though in, this is different from past conservatives where they want to starve the state, they don't want the state to be less powerful, they just want it to be powerful in the right way. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Idris, and such an important point. And I guess thinking back to 2016, there was this funny period before Trump was elected where there were many on the right who thought there would be a gap between style and, and substance for 
for Donald Trump, that the style of Donald Trump might seem entirely different from Republicans who'd come before. But in substance, once in office, he'd be a bit more tame and a traditional Republican. And that was obviously wrong. It wasn't so wrong in that Trump did pass tax cuts and he did appoint conservative justices to the Supreme Court. But he started doing some of the stuff that we just heard Paul Dance outlined. He bristled when he felt like there were those in his own administration who held him back, whether they were cabinet-level officials or whether they were members of the so-called deep state. And so what you see now is a real concerted effort to merge both the style and the substance in a systematic way ahead of him regaining power. I think what's so important about these plans and why it's important to understand them now is that I think that there is a more realistic chance that some of the actual populist things that he's he's planning actually come to fruition. At the start of the administration, they were hamstrung by their lack of knowledge of the governmental system, the lack of knowledge of the Administrative Procedures Act, these sorts of run-of-the-mill things that anyone who had served in a past administration would know that they just tripped up on. And like Paul said, the clock for a presidency is a lot shorter than people think. I think that's why it was interesting to look at the personal aspect of the plans for the next Trump term. Because as you both said, to some extent, when Donald Trump won, a lot of conventional Republicans said or decided that they'd back him anyway. A lot of Republicans served in that administration who might have served in another Republican administration. January the 6th changes that, right? If you're still on board with Donald Trump after January the 6th, you're already in a different category of Republican. A lot of those Republicans who might have served in the first administration just out of a sense of patriotism, they've self-selected out now. Those people are not going to serve in a second Trump administration. So that already makes the pool of you know, potential political appointees different to last time around. And then you have this organized effort that Paul Dans is leading at Heritage to have, you know, 3,000 people, 4,000 people pre-vetted to make sure that they're on board with the program. And also, to Idris's point, to make sure that they have the knowledge of the law, of process, of policy to go in to run those departments and boss the non-political appointees, the career civil servants, around and make sure that those America First priorities are carried through. And that's a big reason why I think a second term would be so different from a first. Okay, we'll go back to the time when an act of violence led to the creation of the modern civil service in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you'd take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't already have one. It will give you full access to all of our journalism. And it's because of our subscribers that we can go and do all the reporting and writing and podcasting that we do here at The Economist. So thank you to everyone who already subscribes. And thank you too if you're thinking about it. Charlotte and Idris, what have you particularly enjoyed from the past week or so's coverage? Our colleagues Katrine Brahek and Sasha Nauda wrote a fantastic long report on IVF, how it's failing women now and how the industry might change. And it's a fantastic and deeply reported piece. So I hope people find it of interest. I really enjoyed our obituary of Milan Kundera, the Czech author, whose novels I really enjoyed reading many years ago and uh, I hope to revisit. But I thought it was a really lovely send-off by someone who clearly loved all of the writing that he had done. Our obituaries are written by the great Anne Rowe, who is just a fantastic writer. And frankly, it's worth subscribing to The Economist just so you can read those. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. 
There was a man acting shiftily at the Baltimore Potomac station in Washington, D.C. One eyewitness saw him pacing around the waiting room and thought he had an evil eye. A policeman on duty heard him ask a coach driver to be on standby should he suddenly need to scarper. The onlookers were right to be concerned. At about 9.30 a.m. on July 2, 1881, President James Garfield entered the station, heading to the next train. Suddenly, the suspicious man raised a pistol and shot the president at close range. Today, his injuries wouldn't have been fatal, but the doctors couldn't save him. They tried champagne, then a diet of steak and eggs. Alexander Graham Bell turned up with a sort of rudimentary metal detector to attempt to find where the bullet had lodged, but couldn't. Garfield died two months later. Charles J. Gitto, his assassin, had wanted a job in the federal government. An unsuccessful lawyer, he had made a few speeches supporting Garfield in the 1880 election and expected something in return. He was hoping for an ambassadorship, maybe Vienna or Paris, he suggested in letters to the president. His entreaties went unanswered. In the 19th century, civil servants were appointed to jobs based on the so-called spoils system, as in, to the victor, the spoils. When a new president took office, his administration would give roles to those who had donated to or supported their candidacy. Gitto thought he was owed one. His actions led to the reform of the system that had driven him to murder. In January 1883, Congress passed the Pendleton Act. Named after the reforming senator, George Hunt Pendleton, it meant that government jobs would now be awarded on the basis of merit rather than patronage. Prospective employees had to pass exams, couldn't be fired for political reasons, and couldn't be required to work for or donate to campaigns. It was the first step towards the professional career civil service still in place today. Here's my plan to dismantle the deep state and reclaim our democracy from Washington corruption once and for all, and corruption it is. First, I will immediately reissue my 2020 executive order restoring the president's authority to remove rogue bureaucrats, and I will wield that power very aggressively. In October 2020, Donald Trump issued an executive order called Schedule F, which would make it easier for him to fire civil servants. It would have removed some of the protections against political interference introduced by the Pendleton Act. There wasn't enough time for Schedule F to take effect before President Biden rescinded it. But those preparing for a second Trump term want to bring it back. Idris, it's one of those interesting twists that we often get in American history, whereby the assassination of President Garfield and the appalling botched medical care that he received led to the creation of the modern civil service. Yeah, and it's a real shame because Garfield was, by many accounts, one of our most intelligent presidents. He uh, came up with his own proof of the Pythagorean theorem, of which there are quite a few, but it's still quite an accomplishment to be able to devise an original one. And, uh, you know, by today's medical standards, he probably would have been fine in about two or three days. But, you know, they uh, didn't really 
uh, adhere to germ theory. And um, they also, like we said, <laughs> got Graham Bell to come and, and look for the bullet. But the physician insisted that it was on the other side. So they never scanned the, the side that the bullet was on, which was just a, a shame. But Anyway, the point is not Garfield's sad demise, but what happened to the civil service afterwards. So the American system before, before the federal government became as important as it was, was, you know, just riven by the sense of spoils and, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't say huge corruption, but petty corruption of some kind. There has been an attempt, I think, as the federal government has gotten bigger and bigger to try to exert some amount of control. And that's a delicate balance, right, that you have between the executive, who is democratically elected, and the bureaucracy, which isn't, and isn't a co-equal branch of government. So how do you do it? I think that the way that the future Trump administration plans to do it might backfire in a few ways. For one, America already has too many political appointees relative to other civil services, and uh, getting them all in place, getting them all set up, getting the people who need Senate confirmation in just takes up a huge amount of time and effort, probably too much time and effort. Increasing the amount of turnover in the American system, I think, adds to the chaos and might even lessen the ability of the administrative state to do what you want it to do. And then the second point is a deeper one, but that this is a this can be a cheap short-term trade. You can if you end up exercising the people who have all the technical expertise that is actually needed and you know it would be the people with policy making experience who probably would be on the on the chopping block with schedule F, then you you rob your government of something pretty important, which is the ability to understand these issues with a certain amount of continuity from one administration to the other. I think that there are a lot of issues with the way that this is being pursued. Michael Lewis wrote this book, The Fifth Risk, which was about the work that the Trump administration tried to do in changing the activities of certain agencies. And the way that Michael Lewis portrayed it was basically that these Trump people came in and they were fundamentally uninterested in much of the complex workings of agencies such as the Department of Energy, which is the agency that requires an enormous amount of technical expertise, by the way, because among other things, they take care of America's nuclear stockpile, but that they were kind of uninterested and also not particularly effective. And so what you have now is amplifying the fifth risk that Michael Lewis identified and going into these agencies in a much more systematic way and uh, neutering them and putting in people who would agree with President Trump. And I have to have a a bit of a disclaimer in this conversation because my dad, who shares my last name, Philip Howard, has written books on legal reform, including reform to the civil service. And I asked him about this because I was interested in what he thought about this because he, and I don't agree with him on everything, but he talks about the need for civil service supervisors to be able to fire people more easily for bad performance. And I think that there is certainly an argument that you could make these agencies or the civil service run more efficiently. But my dad argued that Schedule F is way too ham-fisted and you absolutely should not have partisan firing. So I thought that was kind of interesting because it's yet another example in which I think reasonable people can have a view that some reform is needed. But what Trump is suggesting or the people crafting these plans are suggesting is something much, much more radical. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think there's a reasonable version of civil service reform that says not every civil service job should involve lifetime tenure and that people who underperform, you know, should be fired like in some other jobs. But then there's a kind of Twitter or campaign version which says that 
There's this deep state that's always been against Donald Trump, that's been persecuting him in office and out of office. And Schedule F is the instrument of his revenge on the deep state and the bureaucracy needs to be torn apart. The administrative state, all those government agencies that help to govern America is unconstitutional and that needs to be taken apart. You know, that is a very, very radical program for government. So there's a reasonable interpretation of all of this and a pretty scary interpretation. Yeah, I think the idea of eradicating the deep state is a really scary one when you think about what it means in practice, because it seems to often mean eliminating people who believe in the rule of law. So if you think about the first uh, Trump administration, he wanted to fire Robert Mueller, right? He didn't like it that Mike Pence said, no, there was an election and you lost. And so if you think about that type of management that Trump is known to practice playing out across the entire federal government, it's worrisome. But I do think it's kind of it's both scary and I don't know that it's politically practical. I think the people who decided to vote for Joe Biden in 2020, who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, I don't think that they would be enamored of a Trump 2.0 that's even more muscular. So this is both scary, but I wonder if this type of planning undermines his prospects. We've talked quite a lot already about the how of a Donald Trump second term. We'll be back in a moment to talk about what exactly a second Trump administration would seek to do in terms of public policy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Charlotte, you've talked in recent weeks on recent episodes about your love of reading Supreme Court opinions and federal guidance. And so there are lots of treats in store for you this week in preparation for this podcast. The Heritage Foundation has published a 900-page policy book called Mandate for Leadership, which sets out in some detail some policy proposals for the next conservative president. The America First Policy Institute also has a similar document, not quite as long. We're going to delve into a few policy areas in a moment, but I thought we'd start with energy policy, which is one of your favorite subjects. Bernard L. McNamee was the commissioner of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission under Donald Trump, and he wrote Heritage's chapter in the Mandate for Leadership, setting out how he thinks the energy department under the next conservative administration should be run. The guiding goals there are to make sure that there's abundant, reliable, and affordable energy. And that comes through in a number of things. One, having an all-of-the-above approach on energy, which includes, you know, ending the so-called war on coal, war on fossil fuels, and recognizing the great benefits that natural gas provides both to electric reliability, affordability, and reliability, and also the ability to produce natural gas and export it that helps our friends and allies. All these things need to be refocused in our opinion, towards energy security and to advance science. And I believe that the Department of Energy has, has lost its way on that under the Biden administration. And why do you think it's lost its way? 
it instead of focusing on core science and on core energy issues, its primary focus seems to be trying to support renewable developers, decarbonization, which is not in its core mission as enacted by Congress. And it's distracting from what's you know vitally important to the American people is to have access to affordable and abundant energy. And by not focusing on that and focusing along with acts by Congress, you know, we're seeing energy scarcity in the United States. You're seeing power shortages in the United States, outages, blackouts, especially during extreme weather. We're also seeing problems in getting natural gas pipelines built. So there's a whole series of issues where instead of focusing on the core mission to support the energy economy of the United States, which therefore supports the entire economy of the United States and ultimately our national security, we're seeing it focused on a narrow, really trying to to focus on narrow environmental goals that are supporting some special interest groups. Is your argument that the federal government shouldn't be engaged in trying to reduce or mitigate the impacts of climate change or, or in the in the green transition shouldn't be involved sort of period or that it's not proper for the doe to be involved in that the issue is that congress needs to make the decision about what the executive branch should be doing not the president and not the department of energy and not the bureaucrats the point is is that congress makes the major decisions about what should be the focus And of course, Congress in some areas has said that they want to spend money on certain issues. And we think that that's distorting the energy economy and that that's hurting the American people, both in terms of the reliability of energy, the availability of energy and and increasing the price of energy. I was struck reading your chapter and the heritage um, mandate for leadership that in America, and particularly on the right in America, there's the idea that there's a war on fossil fuels. But viewed from the outside, America has this incredible energy abundance compared with most other countries. I mean, America produces not quite twice as many barrels per day of oil as Saudi Arabia, but not far off. And you know, since fracking technology became so good, has become a huge producer of natural gas as well. So I, I'm a bit puzzled by the sort of war on fossil fuels um, language because, as I said, kind of viewed from the outside, America just produces a lot of oil and gas and is really a world leader there. So could you explain Could you explain that to me? The ability of the United States to produce many of these things, particularly natural gas, has been in spite of actions by uh, the current administration, not because of it. And so, for example, the Biden administration put a pause on being able to have drilling on federal lands when it came into office. There have been a variety of actions over the number of years, including during the Obama administration, that really made the production of coal very difficult and very expensive. And there continues to be administrative action that is making it difficult to produce and to let the market choose what energy sources they want. And then by providing, especially through Congress, so many subsidies for renewable resources, which in and of themselves, wind and solar can be very good and very helpful. By putting their thumb on the scale, by providing subsidies, they're distorting the markets, that, especially in how electricity dispatch takes place and how the different resources are used. But the innovation and ingenuity of the American people have still managed to be able to produce a number of things. And in fracking in particular, Congress years ago told the federal government they couldn't regulate it, which has been one of the reasons it's been so successful. Let's fast forward and imagine that... A Republican candidate, Donald Trump, somebody else, 
wins in 2024. And let's fast forward to 2028, or I guess 2029, January 2029, and imagine that that president is coming to the end of, of his or her term. Put yourself there and tell me what you think America's energy landscape would look like after you know four more years of a conservative administration, uh, and you know how that would be different to how things are now. I think if there's a conservative or Republican administration or anybody that's following the proposals we're talking about, I think that you would find a United States and ultimately many in the world that would have more abundant energy choices that it would be an all of the above. There'd be a mix of all different resources, but you'd have a more secure and resilient and reliable electric grid, at least in the United States. You'd have a better balance of transportation and electric and industrial uses of energy, and prices would probably be lower. And ultimately, that helps everybody. And the end result is that you're going to have a energy economy and an overall economy that is going to be stronger, which is going to allow for economic growth, which is going to bring you know many people out of poverty and help expand the growth and the ability of the United States to, to continue its role in assisting its friends and allies across the world. So, Charlotte, we now heard from one of the people making plans for what the Trump administration or the next conservative administration's energy policy would be. What did you make of that? Where to begin? Okay, so the first is whether there's an actual problem that he needs to solve in terms of fossil fuel production. It was under President Obama that there was a change made to allow the export of U.S. energy. Biden has been very aggressive in granting permits for drilling he his FERC approved a natural gas pipeline that Joe Manchin favored this spring. So I don't really actually think there's a problem with American energy production when it comes to fossil fuels. Yes, there are projects that could be approved faster, but the Biden administration is actually quite pro, uh, particularly boosting LNG exports, for instance, to Europe. They're strong economic and geopolitical reasons to support that across the right and left. So he tries to amp up something that's not a problem, and he ignores the absolute enormous problem of climate change. And you see this across the proposals in that document, that 900-plus page document, which I have not read all of, but which I really enjoyed the sections of that I did peruse, because there's all kinds of stuff in there that is just fascinating. I mean, on basic science, for instance, they want the national labs to focus on basic science rather than any demonstration or deployment. And if you don't believe that climate change is a problem, okay, but when you have time pressure to try to lower emissions and change the structure of the energy economy in record speed, maybe you do want the government involved beyond just basic science. Very weird policy on carbon capture. The document notes that Carbon capture is both commercially unviable and also that government support should be eliminated. That's a policy that would surely not be supported by big oil companies, which are invested in and looking to be leaders in carbon capture, which is essential to the energy transition. I could go on. So there are all kinds of things in there that I think are completely misguided. Idris, I thought it'd be interesting to spend some time on energy and climate because I think that's one area where you'd see a very stark difference if there were Trump's second term compared with a Joe Biden's second term. But obviously, there are plans, policy plans in pretty much every 
area being hatched at Heritage, at AFPI, at a bunch of other think tanks. What else jumped out at you policy-wise in terms of plans for a second Trump administration? One that leaps out to me as most serious is the ending of the norm of uh, independence with the Department of Justice. I think that that is a something that is being openly campaigned for, which would have uh, a lot of kind of perverse effects and not only in, in practical terms, which I think would be pretty severe, but also in just decimating whatever remaining trust is left in the rule of law and American institutions. The fact that if uh, an unindependent uh, Department of Justice could be wielded by Donald Trump or, you know, as he saw fit, I think that you would see in the worst case without the people there to constrain him, an ending of investigations into people he perceives as his allies and a politically motivated resumption of them into those he sees as his enemies. And there are a lot of them. So that to me is, is especially worrying. And then also the other one that I find especially concerning is uh, Donald Trump's plan to resolve the war in Ukraine, by which he means uh, force a capitulation by cutting off aid. He says that he would do that on day one. And presumably he would, with these new powers, get rid of a lot of the dissenting voices within the national security establishment, the intelligence community. You know, that, that bodes ill, I think, for how America would handle a possible invasion of Taiwan. But also, I think it, it bodes ill in ways that we might not have contemplated yet, because we've seen very recently, uh, in 20 years ago, what happens when you have a presidency that weighs in very heavily on the intelligence community, such that it only gets the intelligence that it wants to receive and ignores dissents that emerge. And that resulted, of course, in the Iraq war, which was a 10 year plus boondoggle. You can imagine similar problems cropping up, not just with the intelligence community, the national security establishment, but all uh, avenues of government. There is a point to having dissenting opinions. You know, maybe at The Economist we encounter that sometimes. But nonetheless, it's an important thing to preserve. To give us just a sense of what Idris is talking about, we have leaders, which are our word for editorials, and there's a big debate on Mondays in which people present their ideas for leaders and then anyone on staff is invited to debate them. And there's also a process when the leader's actually been written where some people are invited to give comments. And so it's a delicate balance of saying in an email, I think absolutely everything you've written is absolutely wrong. You know, sincerely yours ever, Idris Kalun, to maintain the peace. But it's actually kind of fun. If I disagree, I like to begin an email with, thank you for giving me the opportunity to comment on this leader. You can also give uninvited commentary on leaders. That's always fun. <laughs> yeah, I expect our next opportunity to politely disagree with each other in our leader pages will be when Donald Trump's indicted for a third time. Is it number three? I feel like I'm I'm losing track. We're recording the podcast on a Thursday. We're expecting that indictment for his role in January the 6th to come fairly soon. I think whatever's in that indictment, it's fairly unlikely that he would be prosecuted and convicted in time to prevent him from standing in the next presidential election. And he's really likely to be the Republican nominee. And so the chances of the plans that we've been discussing on today's podcast being carried out are are non-trivial. I mean, this is this stuff is likely enough that it's really worth taking seriously and spending some time trying to understand. I think the bigger problem is that these ideas have become mainstream within the Republican primary. So Ron DeSantis, the 
person who's polling second in the Republican nomination has already pledged that he would fire the FBI director. He says and agrees that the DOJ isn't independent from the White House and that the FBI and and DOJ need to be, you know, really functionally dismantled um, in terms of, of their mode of operation. And that to me is concerning one because I think it just illustrates how DeSantis has lost his way. Why is he why is he fighting Donald Trump's fights for him? But two, I think it just demonstrates that this stuff is is incredibly common, mainstream, and, and whatever Republican nominee we probably get out of this process is going to be one who shares these ideas about the deep state and has a pretty radical program for uh, defanging it. Okay. Quiz time. We began this episode by talking about president's first 100 days. I'm going to give you both a president's approval rating at the end of their first 100 days in office. And I'm also going to give you their approval rating when they took office. So you know, how did their ratings change over the first 100 days? I want you to tell me which president I'm referring to. And just to give you a hand, the data go back to Eisenhower and only cover presidents who first took office after an election. So no LBJ and no Gerald Ford. Okay, question one. Who had an approval rating of 41% at the end of their first 100 days, down four points from 45% when they took office? Hmm, I'm going to say Bill Clinton for some reason. That sounds like Trump. I feel like he came in pretty low. Donald Trump did come in pretty low. It was Donald Trump, the lowest presidential approval rating at the end of the first 100 days so far. Question two, who had an approval rating of 83% at the end of their first 100 days, up 11 points from 72% when they took office? So an 11-point gain after the first 100 days. Reagan? Who was that popular? Um, I know, it seems hard. Yeah. Um, I think Reagan's a good guess, but I guess my second would be Eisenhower himself. It was actually JFK who had the highest presidential approval rating of anyone at the end of his first 100 days. Okay, last one. Who had an approval rating of 68% at the end of their first 100 days, up 17 points from the 51% when they took office? It's somebody you guys have already guessed. Yeah, I'm going to go with Reagan now, but... That feels a little lame. It was indeed Ronald Reagan. Ooh, I'll take a win wherever I can get it. Um, And a woot. (laughs) Yeah, because I just won one quiz question, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank my one and only supporter, Michael Brown, a listener who wrote in last week saying, hang in there on the quiz. So much appreciated. Thank you. God bless you. God bless America. Well, after that Charlotte triumph, that's it for this week. Thank you, Idris. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Nicolas Rofast is our sound engineer. Thank you to everyone who's emailed with their thoughts on our picks for the Summer Book Club. It's not too late for you to start reading along. In an episode in August, we'll be discussing The Age of Innocence, The Sound and the Fury, and Invisible Man. Do email us on podcasts, plural, at economist.com to tell us how you're enjoying those books and suggest what you think should be classed as a great American novel. That's podcasts with an S at economist.com. We also have a checks and balance newsletter. You can sign up for that at economist.com slash newsletters. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.